This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. This is uh, the way we begin every year our reunion weekend. And so we're delighted to have many of you come from faraway places to come to today uh, to, and to take part in all of our reunion activities. But also many of you are, are work within uh, walking distance of here and came over for lunch. And we're really delighted to have you. We want to do more and more of these activities to bring you together with your professors, with the students at the law school, and also with me and other administrators. So really delighted to have all of you here. I'm also delighted to introduce to you our distinguished faculty speaker. Every University of Chicago event, every single one of them has food, some fun, even though what people used to say about the University of Chicago, we have fun all the time and more and more, and food for the mind. And I know no one better to deliver that food for the mind than our faculty speaker, Dick Helmholtz. Now, let me have a show of hands. How many people in this room had Dick for a class when you were at the law school? All right, so there's a good number, Dick, for you to call on uh, during, the, during the presentation. As all of you know, uh, Dick arrived at the law school in 1981 after teaching for 10 years at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a graduate of the Harvard Law School and also received an AB in French Literature from Princeton University and a PhD in Medieval History from the University of California at Berkeley. In the course of his career, Dick has been awarded a number of different prestigious prizes and fellowships, including a Fulbright Scholarship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Alexander von Humboldt Research Prize. He's also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America, and a member of the American Law Institute, as well as a corresponding fellow in the British Academy. His teaching interests have been centered on the law of property. Every year, about one half of our class takes Dick for property and then goes on, because many of them are smitten with his teaching style, go on to take classes in natural resources law or seminar in some topic of history and including courses that have to do with Roman law, canon law, and the development of the common law. Now, Dick's nickname for generations at the law school is the hammer. And I think a number of you know that. He's one of those professors, and I have to say we have very few of them left, who use a type of Socratic teaching, which many of you had when you were in law school, but among younger people, including myself, is in short supply. Rigorous, demanding, demanding, 
at times perhaps a little scary, and yet deep down all of the students at the law school know he cares deeply about them. They know that deep within him there is this love for them. He shows it by going out ice skating with them every year and also uh, by just make, poking fun at himself from time to time. So with that, we thought he'd be a wonderful person to bring on. And also, what I wanted you to understand is what we're going to do is Dick is going to give a talk. The talk is going to be about the Magna Carta. He's going to finish. You'll have some questions. I've told him to feel free that if no one raises their hand, to just start calling on him and pretend he's back in the law school building. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dick Hemholtz. I love that. The depth of my interest in the students is shown by the fact that I go ice skating. Dean Schill asked me to speak to you. My first thought, of course, was to take as my topic the, uh, the rule against perpetuities. I thought it would give me a chance to call on a number of you to see how much of what I taught you in first-year property is stuck over the years. So I suggested it as my topic. Well, I have to say that uh, apparently the Dean didn't see it my way. A rare frown came over his face, and he told me to come up with something a little more appealing. I offered him the possibility of a deceptive topic, but he vetoed that. The rule was on its way out, he said, and as soon as I began to, began to talk about it, so would you, right out the doors. So as I considered other possibilities, I recalled one of the happiest, and for me, one of the most impressive experiences I've had at our law school since I came here more than 30 years ago. And it involved our students in a direct way. Some of you may know that on Thursdays we have a faculty workshop at which a visitor or member of the faculty presents his or her own work in progress. Often students are invited to attend. They usually don't say much, much of anything, though I think they should say more than they do. They must be intimidated by the big mouths on our faculty. In any event, on a day in the 1990s, it fell to me to make a presentation and a number of students turned up. My talk on the occasion was again about Magna Carta, the Charter of English Liberties from 1215, agreed to by King John and the barons at Runnymede. You'll remember that only a few years ago, one of our most distinguished alumni, David Rubenstein, purchased one of the early manuscript copies of England's Magna Carta. And he then established an exhibit for it in the National Archives building in Washington, D.C. And I hope some of you have the chance to visit it. My talk that day, in any event, asserted that among the Charter's sources was a strong influence running from the Roman and canon laws. By comparing the text of Magna Carta's individual provisions with those existing learned laws, I, I thought sought to show that the Charter, like so many of other contemporary laws of individual European lands, incorporated the revival of interest in Roman law then being developed in Bologna, Oxford, and other European universities. This wasn't the widely accepted view of Magna Carta's origins. Indeed, uh, many think that the Charter was simply a product of baronial self-interest, sort of an early public choice theory. 
Well, I didn't read it that way. To me, it made better sense of the evidence to see it as a natural result of the premises of contemporary legal thought. It would be an exaggeration if I were to assert that my understandings carried the day, but I've gone further with the topic, uh, and my memory of the students who heard that earlier talk has encouraged me to persevere with it. Perhaps there are even some among you today who remember the occasion. I myself was quite surprised afterwards, indeed amazed, when several of the students approached me and asked whether they could publish the article in the Law Review. For me, that came completely out of the blue. I'd expected no such offer. I thought the editors were interested in circuit splits, not in the sources of the 13th century English uh, document, which was very far from what we teach in law school. But I was flattered and surprised to receive the offer, and I accepted it. And it was the recollection of that happy event that put into my head that I might on this occasion appropriately discuss my own further research in the subject. It's gone in a different but related direction. And hoping that your interest might match that of the U of C's law students in 1998, I want to describe the Magna Carta's place in the context of European legal history. It's not a bad time, of course, for such an effort. Next year will mark the 800th anniversary of King John's acceptance of Magna Carta's terms. And there's to be a considerable celebration of the event in London, held during this coming summer and in, 19, in 2015. One of them is to be sponsored by the American Bar Association, as well as the appropriate English learned societies, including the uh, Inns of Court. There's more to be said about the Charter, and I, I think that's right. It also turns out that the Charter has not been rendered wholly irrelevant to the practice of current law, despite the passage of eight centuries. It continues to be cited and argued about in the case law. An online search of Westlaw produced a total of 1,309 citations to the Magna Carta since 1975. While it's true that a few of them did turn out to be references to the Magna Carta paper company, uh, most were not. Uh, they were about the charter itself, and they ranged from seemingly, seemingly frivolous invocations by the smallest of fry, as in a 1979 claim by a Georgia man that the IRS's efforts to collect income tax from him violate, quote, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and the U.S. Constitution. They ranged to the solemn and consequential invocation by this, our own Supreme Court, as in Justice Powell's 1982 opinion in Solemn Against Helm, where he invoked three chapters of the Charter, which stated that immersements, roughly speaking what we call a fine, should not be in excessive as, re as relevant in, in, in invalidating a sentence of life imprisonment that had been imposed upon a man who'd been convicted of passing a bad check. This was under South Dakota's uh, recidivism statute. It was the, the penalty in the case was wholly disproportionate with the offense. And what Justice Powell did was to see the Eighth Amendment as stating, in a concrete circumstance, a general principle that lay behind Magna Carta's own chapters. And this approach, I claim, was true to the Charter itself. 
and it's something we'll better understand by taking a European view of what happened at Runnymede. That requires two things. First, making the effort to understand Magna Carta within the jurisprudential principles commonly accepted by European lawyers at the time. And second, by looking across the English Channel to compare the Charter with contemporary developments on the continent. Surprisingly to me, this has not been done. So let's see what it produces. First, jurisprudential assumptions. According to the learning of the day, including the University of Bologna and the other universities, where the study of Roman and canon law was being revived, all law could be put within three or four general classifications. Natural law, the law of nations, the civil law, and at least among the canonists, divine law. The dividing line between these, however, was not fixed. Indeed, they built upon one another. The law of nations and the civil law provided specificity and sanctions to make real and practice the principles that were drawn from the law of nature. In this system, the law of nations, or the just gentium, stated specific rules that were common to all civilized people, but were derived ultimately from the law of nature. The civil law stated the rules for individual locations or peoples, and they might differ from one place to another. But it was assumed that they would be broadly consistent with the principles found in the first two. Thus, to take only one example, the law of nature held that parents should care for their children. The Ius Gentium might add that to that broad statement established in the instance, for instance, that fathers should provide enough support to allow their children to establish their own families. And the civil law of individual nations or regions might add that the obligation extended to providing a dowry for unmarried daughters. It's kind of a pyramid uh, upwards towards specificity from generality. The three sources of law each had a role to play. They were interrelated, but differed in specificity and in the degree to which they were subject to amendment. The law of nature was assumed to be permanent, not subject to abolition or even modern or even major variation, whereas the civil law could be changed by the act of legislature. I think that this statement of the system of jurisprudence at the time is helpful because it was an assumption that underlay all law, and it's useful, I think, in understanding Magna Carta's place from a European perspective. It offers the answer, an answer, to a puzzling question that's long preoccupied commentators on Magna Carta. That question is how to explain the seemingly strange mixture of large principle with minute detail in legal, about legal practice. Both of them exist, as it were, cheek and jowl in the chapters. A provision requiring removal of fish weirs from the Thames River sits next to a guarantee of impartial justice in the royal courts. A chapter fixing the amount of the medieval equivalent of an inheritance tax at 100 pounds is found near one requiring consent by the Common Council of the Realm for new forms of taxation. They seem to be strange bedfellows, but in fact they were not. They were a consequence of jurisprudential assumptions I just stated briefly. Magna Carta, undergirded by the law of nature, 
and backed also by the law of nations, put into written form civil laws meant to give practical effect in English law to larger principles of justice. Removals of fish weir, for example, was a concrete means of securing freedom found both in the law of nature and in the jus gentium, that is, the freedom of navigation. Those of you who are familiar with Hugo Grotius, later Mare Liberum, will recognize the argument and the connection. We've in, ourselves retained a, its enfeebled descendant today in the so-called navigation easement held by the federal government in order to secure passage over our waterways. It was then based upon a principle of natural law, but in order to be made effective, it required specificity. Within a European context, its placement appropriate enough in a statement of liberties, that is the placement of a requirement of removing fish weirs, made perfect sense. It was normal. And the lawyers would have seen through the detail of the chapter requiring it to the principle which underlay it. Quite a few of the other provisions, though not all, fell within the same pattern. Chapter 7 and 8 dealing with marriage and the property of widows, Chapters 17 and 18, establishing a fixed location of the royal courts. Chapters 29 and 30, forbidding royal appropriation of the subject's chattels uh, for carting or castle guard are all examples. Rooted in legal principles, they refined those principles to fit contemporary conditions in England. It was the way European, the European judicial jurisprudential system was supposed to work. How can this be, you may say? What would a group of English barons know about the assumptions of the European jurisprudential system? Most of this group of barons must have been more bellicose ancestors of Downton Abbey's Earl of Grantham. They spent their hours hunting and whoring, not studying jurisprudence. Well, that may be true, but not all of them were ignorant men. And the leader of the barons was not the Earl of Grantham or even William Marshall. The leader, or at least the leading negotiator of peace between the king and the barons, was Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, and a product of the schools and universities, if one ever lived in the uh, time. He studied and taught in the University of Paris before proceeding to the Roman Curia and thence to the troubled position of Archbishop to the English king. It was no accident that the chapter's first charter, unlike the previous Articles of the Barons, proclaimed the king's desire to respect the freedom of the English church. This fact alone invites us to view what happened at Runnymede from a European vantage point. The second half of taking a European perspective requires looking at comparative developments on the continent to see what the Eus Gentium, the law of nations as then understood, adds to our understanding. Taking this approach shows several things. First, the era of Magna Carta was a great period for the issuing and statement of fundamental laws and basic rights in the different areas of Europe. Magna Carta was not unique. Second, there was both variation and similarity in the provision in the, of the documents stating these laws, uh, variation from place to place. 
a concern for implementing the demands of justice and securing the fairness in the system of justice was mixed in with concerns of the moment. Third, they were normally issued, these laws, in the name of the king or other ruler, though sometimes, as with Magna Carta itself, they were forced upon the ruler by pressure or open revolt on the part of the ruler's vassals. It was the ruler's duty to ensure the peace of his people, and in exactly this era, that duty increasingly took statutory form. Let me just give you a brief example, maybe two. One is the Liber Augustalis, containing the constitutions of Melfi, issued in 1231 by the Emperor Frederick II for the Kingdom of Sicily. It contains titles for protection of the church's interests, guarantee of trial by, for, by peers, promises of learned and upright justices, provisions to guarantee honest weights and measure, and more along the same line, all roughly, but not exactly, similar to what appears in Magna Carta. It also has things found not in the Charter, interestingly, a permission for criminal defendants to be represented by lawyers, a considerable advance in civil rights not reached in England for more than, uh, uh, for many centuries. It also punished the preparers of love, love potions. I don't know why, maybe it was a local problem in Sicily. The point is, I think, that the constitutions of Melfi were made up in the same kind of idiosyncratic and fundamental provisions mixed together that was found in England's great charter, both drew upon natural law and the jus gentium, adding the jus civile to what, as it was applicable in uh, their own land. In the statutes of many Italian cities and provinces, roughly similar in substance to the Liber Augustale, so less impressive, went back to the 12th century. The laws of the Diet of, the Diet of Roncalia, for instance, promulgated in 1158, and among others we have enactments from Pisa, Genoa, and Verona, and other Italian cities. Spanish kings also took part in this movement. The so-called Fuero of Leon, begun in the 11th century and added to in the 12th, promised in 1188 that King Alfonso would take counsel with his barons before taking military action or other serious action, and would respect the property rights of his subjects as by providing impartial justice, and would respect the rights of the church. So this was a pan-European movement. You may yourselves be familiar with some of the other examples of fundamental laws in the 13th century, Philippe de Beaumanoir's customs of the Beauvaisie in France, the Saxon Spiegel in Germany, the Siete Partidas in Castile, or even the laws of King Magnus Lajulas in Sweden. I remind you that Magna Carta itself was always treated as a statute in medieval and early modern England, and in this it fit a broader European pattern. It's not too much to say that Magna Carta was, ex was one example of a Europe-wide phenomenon, a definitive statement of local customs, built, however, on the law of nations and natural law. So that I think that if the integration of European law goes ahead, as it seems to be going, it can look back to these laws of the 12th and 13th century for encouragement. They show that European integration is no new thing. Thanks very much. If you have any questions, I'd be glad to. Uh, yeah.
Was it a coincidence that it happened when? Simultaneously? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's, it's the, uh, the 12th century and the 13th century is the great period. The, the question is, is, this, is the, are the dates coincidental? Uh, or was there some one driving force, I suppose, that caused this to happen at the same time? And I think it's the revival in, uh, of Roman law in the 12th century that starts in Bologna and spreads out over uh, overall Europe that, uh, that caused it. Uh, and the, the, uh, the point of that is that there was a method that they used to uh, produce these um, fundamental laws of, of every place. They were a little different from place to place, but the movement behind it was something that started with the recovery of Roman law and the expansion of canon law at the time. Yes, Richard. the Roman Law Institutes and the same thing on the canon law 
in which they learned this method of the way the laws were supposed to fit together. And they also learned how some of the principles in the Jus Gentium or the natural law uh, were to be manifested in, in uh, different ways. So, for example, one, one principle that you'd read as part of the law of nature was that it was un, unlawful to take someone's property away from them uh, without a good reason. And every law student would have gone through that uh, provision. And you'd see, as it worked out in the glosses and in the various texts in the Roman law, how the Romans themselves worked it out, uh, or how the canon lawyers themselves worked it out in, in detail. Because it's a general principle, and probably too general, to do much good unless you have specific examples of it. And that's what uh, I think you got out of your education, your legal education uh, at the time. Uh, I hope you still get something like that out of legal education, but I'm not so sure. But I am sure about the 13th century. Uh, and they were in fact taught it in their uh, 
in their schools. Uh, whether that's a, a lesson that, that produces any results, I'm not sure. Uh, it'll probably produce an article.
it's not in natural law. All, natural law is a very general kind of thing, which said you shouldn't take people's property from them without a good reason. Or you should pay, if you owe people money, you should pay them that money. But it left open the jus gentium and the jus civile, which were designed to carry into effect the general principles in the natural law. And uh, I, I think that's what's happening there, is, is that the, uh, that the uh, minor child uh, who wouldn't have any assets wouldn't uh, be obliged to pay that. But I don't think that's part of natural law, and I didn't mean to, uh, to assert that it was, because the natural law allows you to work out the details in, in any way that you want, not in any way you wanted to. You had to respect the general principle. But it's far from my argument to say that everything in Magna Carta is in natural law. Uh, it's just that the things that are in Magna Carta had to be consistent with uh, the principles of the law of nature.
the, uh, I just want to both thank Dick and thank all of you for being here today. Uh, this is a, a wonderful tradition that we have, and we do lots of different things during the year. I hope all of you will come back to the law school where most of these activities are, most of these talks, and uh, we will be delighted, obviously, to do more uh, up here at downtown uh, in, in terms of bringing our faculty out to speak with you. Uh, I just want to mention a couple highlights of this weekend. Uh, this evening, we'll be back in this building for the annual Reunions Wine Mess. Those of you who are having reunions or those of you who just want to join us, if you haven't already registered, you can register, speak with Allison over here about registering for tonight. Uh, we've had over, nine, I think we're close to about 900 people registered for one activity or another. Tomorrow we'll be convening at the law school and for the morning and I'll be giving a town hall <clears throat> talking about our wonderful students and some of the exciting programs we have. And then we have a very exciting program, uh, a leadership panel in the afternoon but also in the morning in honor of Diane Wood assuming the senior, assuming chief judge position on the Seventh Circuit. We have a panel of Dick Posner, Frank Easterbrook, Diane Wood, moderated by class of 84 reunioneer Larry Kramer, uh, who just was, just stepped down about a year ago as dean of Stanford Law School and is now president of the Hewlett Foundation. So we anticipate that will be a really terrific, very interesting panel. Um, and again, if you're interested and haven't already registered for these events, you can speak with Allison and she can get you all lined up. So in any event, thank you all for coming and uh, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Bye-bye. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.